The problem with conclusions that claim to know the lessons of history is that history teaches so many different lessons. It is next to impossible to know which to apply to contemporary events about which perception and knowledge are necessarily thickly veiled. One is therefore as likely as not to apply the wrong lessons from history while making entirely original mistakes. That said, the main lessons to be drawn from this survey are ancient yet fundamental. First, beware the vanity of nations and the hubris of leaders, civilian and military, but perhaps civilian most of all. There is grave danger to youth forced into uniform by the hurried ambitions of old men who never wore one, never smelled cordite wafting overhead or knelt by a dying comrade. Also from those who did but who lost the wars of their youth and grew grim and determined to try again. There is nothing particularly original in those observations, except to say that vanity is original with each generation that makes war. Second, always be deeply skeptical of short war plans and promises of easy victory, for they shall surely go awry as combat commences and descends into chaos, and an intelligent and determined enemy refuses to accept the initial verdict. Let us be rid as well of all claims to genius of the greatest generals, and of the whole idea of genius in war, whether of the fawning nationalist sort or Clausewitz's more refined version. It is no more than a form of armchair idolatry, divorced from real explanation of preparation and supporting resources and skill, which then meets with chance in battle. Claims to genius distance our understanding from war's immense complexity and contingency, which are its greater truths. The best field captains react better and more quickly to war's essential confusion, the fog of war than others, but no one truly commands or ever controls such a complex and dynamic thing as battle, let alone war. Assertion of genius separates us from war's wider and shared character, and from its suffering. It upholds the imagined heroic over the brutally horrific, however just the cause and necessary the war may be or might have been. Its celebration by national partisans and historians, who are too often one and the same, obscures the stumbling even of the greatest generals and the grim endurance of soldiers. Let us be done with all that, with talk and poses and lies about genius in war. CJ here, welcome to episode 182 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be speaking with the author of the book from which that passage I just shared with you was extracted. It's one of my favorite passages. It's in the conclusion of the book, the title of which is The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Have Been Won and Lost. And its author is Professor Cattle J. Nolan. Professor Nolan is an associate professor of history at Boston University and is the executive director of the International History Institute. He holds a BA degree from the University of Alberta and an MA and PhD degree from the University of Toronto. His latest nonfiction book, which we're going to be talking about in this episode, is The Allure of Battle which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017 and which received the very prestigious Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History. I will, of course, have links to this book in the show notes as well as some of Professor Nolan's other books as well. So now I present to you my recent conversation 
with Cattle Nolan. Professor Nolan, thank you for taking the time to talk with me on the Dangerous History Podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. So I'm primarily going to talk with you about uh, your most recent book. I guess it was published a couple of years ago, The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Have Been Won and Lost, which won the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History, which uh, is a, a pretty prestigious award. And the the first thing I want to ask you, I just have to ask how many years went into this book? Because it's it's quite a piece of work. Well, writing the book, the actual writing of the book, took uh, two years. Um, researching it uh, sort of directly was about five years. But in a way, it's a culmination of everything I've been thinking through my teaching primarily over the last 25 years or so. But I didn't work on it for 25 years. I mean, I worked on it for for five and the last two was the actual writing. Oh, okay. So let's, let's kind of start off in, in broad strokes. What is the allure of battle? What do you mean by the allure of battle? Well, another way, uh, I, by that phrase, and it's, it's kind of deliberately got a semi-sexual connotation. What I mean is, 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 um, people are seduced into war by the allure of the idea that the war will be short and decisive, even when they know they are the weaker party. In fact, the pattern seems to be that especially when they know they are the weaker party, they turn to the idea that we can win a short war. So if you prefer a different phrase, short war delusion would be a substitute for the allure of battle. Um, We can win a short war. We can win it in the opening campaign. We can win it in the opening battle even. Um, The 19th century had the idea of a single decisive battle 20th century changed that into decisive campaign, but still opening. We're talking months, not years. And the idea is that the weaker power is terribly afraid of getting dragged into, falling into a war of attrition. It'll do anything to avoid a war of attrition, except give up the idea of war, Mm. which it is likely to lose, knows it's likely to lose if it goes long. So it's all or nothing. Um, It's a gambler's mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like um and and various parts of the book uh speak about and it definitely strikes me that there's there's also the cult of battle kind of within the historiography itself going all the way back um as you indicate early on in the book to to ancient times that I guess because so many historians and military theorists and so forth Battle is, as as you kind of indicated before, battle is sexy, right? So yeah. all of the you know ancient through modern writers on military topics seem to be fixated on it, and this kind of creates almost in a way kind of like a, a self-licking ice cream cone or a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not sure quite the right metaphor, but where because there's all this emphasis in the writings on war, on battle, then that often seems to tend to make future generals, you know, their their military yeah. education and all this also 
focuses on battle as the most important thing. So uh, could you could you comment a little bit on that, on sure. how kind of the historiography and, and the, the military theory and kind of how how your book here is um, uh, turning a lot of that on its head? Well, I thought I was going to get into all kinds of trouble when I wrote this book, frankly, because it does really, in a sense, poke its finger into so many different, you know, uh, eyes of of um, of the profession and the approach of the profession. The standard approach of the of the profession is that wars are decisive moments in history, and inside wars, the decisive turning points are key battles. Uh, so, for instance, uh, I think the way to the way to sort of get rid of this right off the top is just to ask people, what was the decisive battle of the Second World War? And they'll, you'll usually hear them trot out the same names. Now, if you want to say Midway, you can make a case for it, but it, it's not decisive in the sense it defeated Japan. It certainly was a turning point. I'm not saying that battles don't matter. I'm not saying that they aren't turning points. I'm saying that in modern wars, and as a historian, modern to me means about the last 300 years or so, um, in modern wars among the major powers, the idea that you can win in a sort of a roll of the iron dice of war, as Bismarck called them, uh, that you can win in an afternoon or you can win in a summer's campaign. Uh, history is just against that. Uh, it just it shows that that is not the case. And the Second World War. So I think the one that people would say, if you just ask the question off the top, they'll say Stalingrad. And my argument is that something like Stalingrad or Kursk or all of these, these are major battles. These are important battles. But World War II was won by mass slaughter and a slow grinding of attrition over six years. And that means that what Stalingrad really did was accelerate the rate of attrition. Uh, it helped additionally wear down the German forces. But it was not decisive in the sense of it determined, if we're going to use the term decisive to mean it decided the war, it didn't do it. Mm. It accelerated the attrition that decided the war. Um, and I think that is a pattern of most of the wars, the Napoleonic Wars is the one that I think has really distorted uh, the perception of historians. I mean, Napoleon, Clausewitz himself actually referred to Napoleon as, the, and I quote, the god of war. That's preposterous. <laughs> but it's Clausewitz. So uh, people, people, you know, when people read Clausewitz the way they read the Bible, they find what they want in there, they quote it, they hardly ever read the whole book. Um, and, and if they did, they would find out that Clausewitz is itself, the book on war is itself, profoundly conflicted. Uh, there's a first half and a second half. And in the second half, he kind of says what I wrote when I was younger. The first half is wrong, but everybody really quotes the first half. Hmm. It's, it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I was reading this book, because I'm not primarily a military historian, but I, I'm kind of like a, I, I dabble in it. You know, I'm an, I'm an interested, uh, an interested party in it. And the one of the experiences I had when reading the Allura Battle was the experience of reading things articulated better than I had ever articulated them, either out loud or in my mind, um, and, and by someone who's much more of an expert specifically in the field, but things that I had for many years kind of thought in a in a more kind of fuzzy, less formed sort of a way, these sorts of thoughts that, you know, it's not at all clear that winning battles automatically translates to winning wars. And it is, it has always struck me ever since I got into history at all, how often the commanders, the generals who are supposedly the great geniuses of war, how often, if you look at the big picture, they end up 
losing, some of them spectacularly, or at the very least not achieving all of their aims. And so I, I can remember when I was a student, um, often getting into arguments with a buddy of mine who was a, a big fan of Napoleon. And, you know, all I kept saying was, yeah, but he, he lost. He lost. <laughs> and, and the same thing is he true lost of twice. Yeah. He lost twice. Yeah. Yeah. He, so he was so, forced to abdicate twice. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, could, could you comment on, on maybe a little bit more on, on Napoleon in that regard? Uh, and some of the other figures that you cover in this book who have this reputation for being these absolute geniuses of war, but when you actually well, see, look at their career, it ended in, in loss. Well, that's an argument that I, I think the one that I'm most um, I don't know, proud is not the word. The, the argument I think is most important in the book that I make is that we need to disabuse ourselves of this whole idea of genius in war, in particular in modern war. Um, that uh, the, the 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 search for genius, and we do it in different ways. We look for individual geniuses in battlefield commanders, and we find them in history, and we identify them. And so, or I'm saying we, I'm saying military historians do this. Um, and and I think if you're if you're looking for 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 genius in modern warfare, and you're not going to like this, it's actually in the capacity of modern society to organize millions of people over long periods of time. It's actually bureaucracy. Uh, it's, it's the capacity to put people in uniform, to feed them, to sustain them, to arm them, uh, because how wars are won, even if you don't set out this way to win them, uh, you set out to win them through battle, you set out to win them through campaigns, you set out to win them through superior technology, and you find that if you're up against a more or less equal power over time, you're going to get ground down and you have to grind his, his armies down and his navies down as well. Um, so it comes down to, well, how many, how many men can we put in uniform? How many guns can we make? How many tanks can we produce? Um, I, mean, I think the spectacular example of this problem in the 20th century are, 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 is, is Germany, in both the First World War and in the Second World War. Just to give you one example, I mean, at, by the end of World War II, most people I think know this, most of your listeners probably know this, by the end of World War II, the Germans, uh, Hitler in particular, but the Germans more generally, the German generals certainly, um, have this still have this battle-centric focus. We'll, we'll win it on the next battle. We'll win it in the next campaign. Just let us get back to the magic of the Panzers. And then you look at the statistics. Over the course of the Second World War, I mean, and I know that people like to sit around and compare tanks. I don't do that kind of thing. But if you want to do that, all right, let's just, let's just give for the sake of argument that the, the Tigers were the best individual tank of the Second World War. Okay, massive, powerful, so forth. They built 2,000 of them, just north of 2,000 of them. The Americans built 50,000 Shermans. The Soviets built 80,000 T-34s. It's just, it's just overwhelming. Um, and uh, that's what happened. At the end of the day, you were swarming Tigers in position, plus you had aircraft superiority and so on and so forth. And the Germans were eroded. And the last six months or so of the war, the German army couldn't even move. It's in place. It's fixed in place. And it's destroyed completely, both on the Eastern Front and on the Western Front. But that's not Napoleon, is it? You wanted me, well, you wanted me to talk about Napoleon. Well, yeah, a little on, on him, too, because I think he's probably, other than the, the Germans in the 20th century, he's probably the most dramatic example of this. Uh, well, sure. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's just no question, um, there's no question that Napoleon was a superior general, the greatest general of his era, maybe of, you know, the past several centuries. Um, superior, he had a natural talent for war, he had a studied talent for war, 
Um, he was better at battle. You wanted to be very careful if he went up against him. You wanted to have superiority of numbers. You wanted to have superiority of position. You needed to know his tactics. He was he was dexterous. He was um, he had flair. But by the end of it, by the end of the fighting, which went on for twenty three years, the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. By the end of it, everybody knew his tactics. Everybody else had to the extent that it was possible, given their more conservative societies, adopted French revolutionary-style mass armies. They had moved away from the professional armies. And you ended up with great grinding battles. The so-called Battle of the Nation of of, uh, Leipzig in 1813 saw 450,000 men in a three-day battle. Um, It's Napoleon lost, uh, because he was in the last, after he made the mistake of going into Russia, where the Russians deliberately consciously decided to avoid battle because they knew he was seeking it and that they would beat him by attrition. Um, uh, He was never again had the numerical advantage. His troops were worn out. France was worn out by war and he lost and was forced to abdicate in 1814. Came back for a spectacular hundred days and then we all get everybody most most written about battle in history is Waterloo, even more than Gettysburg. Waterloo is most written about battle in history and it's really kind of a heroic anachronism. It didn't matter. Even if he had won at Waterloo, he was going to lose. There were five other armies with 500,000 men marching toward France to have done with this man. Uh, the, the nations were aroused, the nations were in arms, and they were going to get rid of him, whether he won or not. Yeah, and, and as you point out in uh, your coverage of Napoleon, he may have often shown genius in tactics, although even there he did uh, drop the ball badly from time to time, but he seemed to be pretty clueless when it comes to overall strategy, particularly grand strategy, um, and and at least a fair amount of the time, pretty clueless on logistics as well. Oh yeah, uh, this is this is a, a, an amazing thing for a man who famously said an army marches on its stomach uh, and understood logistics in Western Europe, where there's very short distances, very t- a huge road and canal network. You can move things around the countries of the Netherlands and the Rhineland and France and so forth very easily over short distances. You can break up your army, as Napoleon famously did, into discrete uh, marching corps and then reconcentrate it at the moment of battle. You can do all of that. And when he got to Poland, when he got to Russia, when he got to these vast uh, expanses with very few roads and very poor farms for the most part, um, he couldn't do it. Uh, he takes in a half a million men. You can't be as dexterous with a half a million men as you can be with 50,000. Uh, and the wars are expanding. The nations are aroused. The nations are arming mass armies. It's the trend that will continue through the 19th century into the 20th century, where we culminate in armies not of half a million, but of millions. And in the Second World War, armies of literally tens of millions. These are not dexterous instruments. This is blunt force trauma. This is war as uh, the, the inevitable mass clash and grinding rather than genius is what decides it. That's my argument. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'm not, I can be challenged on many details. Uh, I'm sure of that. Um, and, and there are, are there generals who are better than others? Do generals make things better or worse? Yes, of course. But even if a general wins you a battle, the battle is not likely to win you the war. You've got to win the battle. You've got to win the summer. You've got to win the year. Then you have to win the decade. It goes on and on and on. We have wars with names like 80 years war, 100 years war, 30 years war. When I was speaking to um, active duty American officers at Fort Leavenworth uh, in 2017, some of the people who are redrafting the you know, army doctrine, 
don't know really why they wanted to talk to me. I was much more impressed with them, obviously. Uh, but I asked them at one point, I was maybe too cocky and feeling a bit cheeky. And I asked them in a public forum, there's a room of about 50 or so of these senior officers, um, whether or not they would accept that we were in, already in a 30 years war. They didn't bat an eye. So I said, what about a hundred years war? There were some nodding heads. They know we're in a war of attrition. They know that we're in a long contest. What, what are the battles of the, the what the, the Thunder Run in Baghdad? Is that the one? It wasn't even a battle. It was um, uh, it was it was a Blitzkrieg strike by the U.S. Army. Uh, what are the battles in Afghanistan? It's not. It's grinding, slow, attritional warfare. And the little guy will adapt, and they have adapted, and they're doing pretty well against um, the forces of the Western countries. Mm. So, can you? Uh, uh, you've spoken a bit in our conversation so far about Napoleon, and you've spoken a bit about the Germans in the 20th century. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the in-between, in particular, the the German wars of unification and the way in which it seems that the Prussian leaders kind of saw what they wanted to see in, in Napoleon's, you know, in the history of Napoleon's wars, and that then their at least apparent success with quote unquote short wars in the wars of German unification kind of put the German leadership on the path that sort of led it into what happened in the 20th right. century. Right. Well, I mean, the Germans were occupied in 1806. Berlin was occupied by the French. The, the Prussians were, the army was, Prussian army was smashed. Berlin was occupied. Berlin was humiliated. Um, they came back to fight the French in 1813, and they were part of the victorious coalition in 1814 and 1815 against Napoleon. But it was the Prussians more than the French who studied Napoleon and thought, this is the way to fight war. Um, uh, it's, not actually so much Clausewitz's influence. He, he is he's a later influence, but of von Molk, uh, the chief of the of the of the Prussian Great General Staff, Helmut von Molk, uh, and other German uh, Germans. But he was the, the critical uh, student. Um, designed the Prussian army for a short, sharp war. But this is also a kind of German style in war, and it comes from the central location of Germany and the fact that if you're German, I mean, anyone's ever played risk or diplomacy, if you ever played risk and if you play the German position, your first instinct is to attack somebody because you have this need to secure at least one border because you do feel surrounded. The Germans used to refer to it as a ring of steel, that they felt surrounded and hemmed in in their ambition uh, to be a major power. And the way they sought to break out of this was a short, sharp, decisive war in which they isolated, and they did it successfully. I mean, you have they did it. They have the three wars of German unification. The first one doesn't really matter. It was a little tiny war against, against Denmark, and it took um, a small province. The big ones that, that counted were in 1866, the Austro-Prussian War, uh, which was over in seven weeks. Uh, the Prussians uh, moved down using the new railways. Uh, the Austrians came out in a single massed army. There was a single battle. This is one of the rare decisive battles that actually decides a war in the modern period. So there are exceptions. I'm not talking about Newtonian rules of history here. Uh, the Battle of Königgrath, uh, or Sedan, as the French call it. Uh, and the, um, pardon me, not Sedan, Sadawa. Uh, the, uh, in a single afternoon, the Austrian army was smashed. It was incompetently led. It had its back against the river. But it was a close-run affair. I mean, it could have actually gone another way, as almost any battle can. Uh, the Prussians won, the Austrians were smashed, and this established Prussia as dominant in northern Germany. Within four years, 
this is, by the way, of course, the, the American Civil War has just ended the year before. Within four years, uh, the uh, Prussians, with the same idea, isolate France diplomatically. That's the key. The British are distracted. The Russians are distracted. The Austrians have been defeated. They isolate France diplomatically. They lure France under an incompetent ruler, Napoleon III, uh, the nephew of Napoleon I, um, into, into battle, and then they destroy the French army, though not the way they intended. They were hoping for a battle of encirclement, uh, a complete decisive victory on the frontiers. Instead, they get several battles and then six months of guerrilla warfare and so on. But in the end, they win. And everybody in Europe, everybody in Europe forgets the lessons of the Crimean War that preceded the German wars and forgets the lessons. In fact, they dismiss any lessons to be learned from the American Civil War. Now, with our perspective, we look back and we say the trenches and the sieges of Crimea, the trenches and the sieges and the grinding attritional war of the American Civil War, that's a portent of what's to come. But that's not the conclusion they drew. Everyone in Europe said, look what the Germans did. Bang, bang. Prussia defeated, a great power defeated in, six, in seven weeks. Uh, France defeated in seven months. That's the, the, new, the new nature of war, and everybody prepared for that. So, and the Germans, uh, in particular, thought, we now have unlocked the secret. We have the Philosopher's Stone. We have the, we have the Alchemist's Stone that can convert decisive battle into decisive victory uh, and world uh, power, world dominance. Not world dominance, but world power, Weltmacht, they called it, to be a world power or a great power. Uh, and they put all of that into the great gamble of 1914. I mean, as you know, I mean, the, the preposterous notion that they will defeat France, a great power, major army in 45 days, then swing around on the railways and defeat another great power in Russia uh, over the following months. Um, and of course, they fail to defeat the French at the Battle of the Marne in, the, in September of 1914. That failure leads directly to the existence of trenches within a couple of months, and then the war of attrition goes on for four years. And they lose. Yeah, and they don't learn the right lessons. And they, they, they do it, it all again. over again. Yeah. They do it all over again. I mean, they defeat Poland in 1939 because it's a minor power, and and, and it seems to confirm their, their short war blitzkrieg uh, tactics. They defeat France in 1940, and that's more a matter of luck than skill. That's kind of was often referred to as a strange defeat or strange victory. I think that's right. So they defeat they defeat Poland uh, because it's a minor power. They defeat France because they get lucky. They def- then they then they try it again against Russia, and I think they get what they deserve. So how what do you what do you make of the way that war has gone since World War II and? Um, the degree to which, you know, direct wars between great powers seem to be simply not happening. Um, well, we have other than, we have other than proxy wars. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's, that's, that's a big other. And we have the, uh, the, the idea of great power wars in the old, the whole trend of military history for about 300, 400 years culminated in the great wars of World War One and World War Two in these mass armies of millions and even ultimately tens of millions of men clashing and smashing with all the weapons of an industry and science uh, at their disposal. Um, and we can't do it anymore because the new just tactical nuclear weapons and even tactical air power means you can't concentrate armies in that way. So you've lost the need for a mass army. And so the search has been on in the technologically advanced countries for for techno fixes to the problem of um, 
uh, to this problem. So, uh, I mean, all through the Cold War, the United States and NATO refused to give up the idea of first-use nuclear weapons because if the Warsaw Pact came through, you know, the full gap with masses of, uh, of, of, of Soviet and Warsaw Pact troops, the, the NATO policy was to nuke them. Um, and uh, you just can't concentrate these forces. And we have what Churchill once referred to, not the balance of power anymore, but the balance of terror, uh, the nuclear deterrence um, among the major powers. And they have, and I think you correctly noted, they have resorted to war by proxy. But these wars show the same characteristics. So in Vietnam, the Soviet Union uh, was, was determined to fight the United States to the last Vietnamese and provide to them. So you're facing a fourth world country, a peasant nation with no industrial capacity, no targets you can really bomb. So the bombing target list is done within six months. And they keep, we keep bombing uselessly um, and extremely expensively, both in terms of morale, morality uh, and uh, propaganda and um, targeting. But uh, the, the, the Vietnamese keep on coming. And the United States kind of got payback uh, in Afghanistan by supporting uh, the Mujahideen against the Soviets until they lost a grinding war of attrition. Uh, millions of people died. Three million died in the Indo-Chinese War. Probably a million died in the Soviet-Afghan War. It's not clear. These are wars of attrition by proxy, but they're still wars of attrition. What are some of the other leading stars of history that have this reputation as as these geniuses for uh, for war, you know, based on on the alleged decisiveness of battle, um, who whom we've not mentioned yet. So there's well, Marlborough. I mean, one of the one of my the problems I developed. You 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 sort of asked me right at the beginning. Uh, talk about the historiography. One of the the things that I encountered, which disappointed me a lot, doing a book that's this wide ranging. So I'm reading. Um, you know, multiple histories from multiple different nations uh, about their wars, their countries, and so on. And it was so disappointing to discover how many military historians are nationalist partisans, that they're not actually writing the history of the war. So we get all kinds of, I mean, you expect it at the popular level, but even at the sort of fairly advanced level, you're getting this, my general's better than your general stuff. And comparative generalship, which is a parlor game that I think, I mean, Students ask me all the time, well, who was better, Patton or Montgomery? How do I know? Be honest. How do I know? I've never commanded a million men in battle. I have no idea whether Lee should have gone left or right. I mean, you really have to be a professional officer with those kind of skills. And even then, we're just, you know, after the fact guessing. Um, uh, I, I think it's a waste of time. That's not how wars are decided, uh, who, whether or not somebody went left or right in a single moment at a critical moment of a critical battle uh, in a critical afternoon. I just don't think that's how modern wars are decided. So the British, for instance, Marlborough is the greatest English general anyway. It, it, one of the people behind that is uh, Marlborough himself was a propagandist for himself at the time. Um, and he is the, his, his, Marlborough is his title name. His original name was John Churchill. So you can imagine his family, uh, and particularly uh, one descendant, uh, wrote a two or three volume biography of Marlborough and plays him up as a great general. Almost all the British military historians hold up Marlborough as this great, decisive general. He fought four battles. He lost one, the last one, and it was such a bloodbath that the Dutch, he was a joint commander of Dutch and English forces, the Dutch fired him and then the English fired him. Um, he just, I mean, it was mass slaughter. Did he have talent that was superior to other people? Yes, but most of his career was spent 
at the time, fighting sieges and uh, marching uh, without engaging the enemy because the enemy would avoid battle and so forth. Battles were fairly rare until we get to Napoleon. Frederick the Great is the other one that's always cited. Um, yeah, okay. So what's the, what's the common conception or depiction of Frederick the Great versus the, the more kind of cold, hard truth? Well, Frederick, the, the, the depiction of Frederick the Great is that, again, all of these generals are seen as innovators, uh, and, and tactical innovators. Um, and, that the, and that's the problem. You said this also earlier, that that's where it stops. They were tactical innovators. I'm not taking that away. Marlborough was an innovator. Uh, he did many things that we would regard as, as brilliant. Um, the, uh, Frederick the Great uh, uh, was a tactical innovator. The problem was he came up with one tactic he used over and over and over. I won't go into details. It's called the oblique order where he would... Anyway, it, uh, he would march. He would he would attack against one flank by marching his troops across the uh, the battlefield um, under concealment. Uh, he did it repeatedly until people knew he was doing this, um, and they were able to counter it. Uh, the but 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 the military histories treat Frederick as this incredible innovator, this brilliant uh, brilliant mind, mind on horseback, which culminates ultimately in Napoleon. And I think it's an intellectual fetishism uh, by intellectuals who are writing uh, military history. The end of the day, Frederick was actually saved from Prussia being invaded. He was actually contemplating suicide. He was on the verge of such a catastrophic defeat when a sheer accident of history saved him. Frederick was infamously agnostic, possibly atheist, but he even referred to this as the miracle of the House of Brandenburg. And what, it, what he meant by that was uh, there was a death. The Russian army was marching into Prussia, and uh, the Tsar died, or the Tsarina died, rather, and was replaced by this young 20-something Tsar uh, who greatly admired uh, Frederick and recalled the army. Uh, and that was it. That's what saved Prussia, not his brilliance, not his battlefield technique, not his tactical or operational dexterity. Um, it was an accident of history, and history is full of things like that, that the modern mind balks against, because we want to say A plus B plus C equals victory, uh, and we want to, historians are, I think, uh, almost congenitally disposed toward causal chains, uh, but history is full of accident and sidestepping and backward movement, and it's more chaotic than it is uh, controlled, I think. And that's why I think the idea of genius and control of something as complicated as battle, let alone war, is misplaced and misdirects us from the true, I think, deeper realities of modern warfare, which is they are won by endurance, uh, they are chaotic, no one is actually in control, and they become struggles. The analogy I used, you probably encountered it a couple of times, is like like giant, like sumo wrestlers uh, struggling until one finally drops from exhaustion, usually just before the other one was about to. Yeah, and if war is characterized in that way, it it does take a lot of the allure out of it. It does make it much less glamorous than these, you know, decisive uh, engagements and all that. Uh, these these you know quick knockout punches. And it, and it makes us think about soldiers differently, and I think that's why people resist what I have what I'm saying, is because they think, well, if it's about attrition, isn't that isn't that awful? Isn't that morally repugnant? Um, and no government's going to turn to its uh, young men and nowadays also young women and say, 
oh, we need you to go out there and be part of a war of attrition. It's going to say, go out there and win, defeat the enemy because of your moral superiority and your, 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 your great character and you're the best that our nation has to offer. And we say all those things, and by the way, everybody says all those things. But in fact, we're sending them out to die in wars of attrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as you said before, uh, it seems that relatively smaller powers with you know less uh, resources and manpower to draw from um, often seem to be particularly prone to the short war delusion. Although it seems like there are also a fair number of examples of powers that, at least on paper, are overwhelmingly uh, favored on the tail of the tape, mm-hmm. also falling for the short war delusion. You know, an example that that comes to mind for me is in the run-up to the Iraq War of 2003, a lot of what the Bush administration was telling the public and the media about, you know, how cheap and quick and simple um, the those, uh, I guess those were sort of the neoconservative types at the time. Um, I mean, it's ludicrous when you go back and look at some of their estimates of like how Quickly, the the war, you know, to, oh, you just knock out Saddam Hussein, and then that'll be that. And um, it is, but but we also had no idea it was going to be in Vietnam for eleven years, right? Or that we'd be in Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan, we knocked out the Taliban in what weeks, couple of months, uh, and it's eighteen years later, we're still there. Nineteen years later, right? So yeah, I mean, I, I guess my point is that even the power that by pretty much all objective metrics should be overwhelmingly considered, you know, the, the, the Goliath of the equation. Number one can also be falsely lured by the, the siren sure. call of the short, easy war. And then, and, the and they can still lose. Yeah. The Russians in Afghanistan are another very recent example of that. Uh, or Saddam Hussein invading Iran, thinking that he was sure. going to win very quickly. Um, uh, yeah, the examples go uh, go on and on. I think we we have a, another example potentially building on the Indian subcontinent. Uh, I mean, I hope not, but um, that one's always festering and, mm. and ready to go. Um, so yes, I, I think this is where things start to get mixed up a little, though, because in addition, one of the reasons the people that you're talking about have this illusion is they also have a, a subordinate illusion. I would say it's it's part of the the whole package, and that is the idea that technology wins wars. But that's demonstrably not always the case, that if, if I have the superior technology, then I'm going to win. Really? Why did we lose in Vietnam? Why did the Russians lose in Afghanistan? Why are, why are we losing in Afghanistan now? Um, because I think we are. Um, it's, it's, it's endurance. It's willpower. It's, um, and you have to admit these things. You have to back off these nationalist interpretations of, and look at them with a cold and hard eye and realize, I'm sorry, that 17-year-old Taliban up the valley, he's got guts. And his society has an enduring capacity to fight, and he wants you out. And uh, you're not going to, after 18 years, flying overhead with helicopters that he has no chance of shooting down, um, or very rarely, uh, that's not enough of an intimidation. The war will go on and on and on. We need to change strategy, but we're not. Yeah, it seems like a common reason i mean i guess it's not the i'm not saying it's the only reason but but part of the reason why there's often this this uh this hubris is not taking into account that at the end of the day whoever your opponent is even though they may not have as much wealth or technology as you do or something like that they're still 
human beings with just as mm. much potential capacity to think and to learn and to adapt as you have. They're intelligent. Yeah. And it's their and if it's their country that your forces are in, you know, even if they're a nasty part of that country, it's their country and you're they're going to be able to sustain the psychological commitment to a grinding war uh, that makes mothers weep on both sides uh, probably longer than you are. Unless you're truly, absolutely ruthless and you go in and you exterminate them. Which is kind of what the Soviets tried to do and they still lost. And by the way, you know, I think it has to be fairly said that's kind of what we were doing at the end of the Vietnam War with these massive re uh, retribution bombing campaigns. Right, yeah. Who, who runs Vietnam now? Right. Yeah, well, is it how, how do I how do I phrase the question? Or is it is it simply do you think uh, just uh, an inevitable tragic element of history that these sorts of things are going to keep playing out? And because seems like if you if you look at war in this way, that all of the the allure and the glamour is gone, and and it becomes much more of of just a, a tragedy. And you look at all those lives you know sacrificed to the the hubris of Napoleon or or the hubris of the various German leaders of the 20th century or whoever. But not just the leaders, also their nations. I think the vanity of oh, nations yes. is the problem that we're in, really, even more than the vanity of leaders. But yes, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Yeah, ex excellent uh, ex excellent point there. I mean, are, are we just sort of doomed to have these sorts of things periodically keep happening and, and all those lives, um, you know, lost in yeah, many instances uh, unnecessarily? I, I'm sorry to say that I do think that is the case. That the um, I, I think another sort of tertiary argument that you'll see come through in the book is I don't think we learn from history. And as a teacher of history, I'm sometimes not sure what the point is in some ways. Um, we don't learn even from our own history. It's virtually impossible to learn from other people's histories. Um, and I think that what the best we have and why we have these sort of peace breaks out uh, in a kind of surprising way every so often, usually after a really catastrophic series of wars. And I think what explains it is you have generational exhaustion. The generation after the Civil War was exhausted by the notion of war, knew that the acquisition of territory from Mexico had helped provoke it, didn't want anything to do with another war in, with, with Spain and Cuba in the 1860s. But a generation then faded, they died, and in the same situation that Cuba comes up in the 1890s and we get the Spanish-American War. So I think you have a generation uh, that knows war, that hates war because they came to know it, that wants to avoid it at almost any cost, that tells its leaders to do so, they do avoid it, and then the generation grows old, grows gray, and dies. And another generation comes along that doesn't know war at all, except it's bookish, it's in the history books. It's not, they don't really know war, and they think they might like to try it. And I do think that pattern has emerged again and again and again. And I say that with no, pleasant, uh, with no uh, pleasure, because we are now at the end of the generation that fought the Second World War. We think we know about the, the the horrors of nuclear war in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but we don't know it. It's gray and grainy and on the films and it's in the history books, but we don't know it. We don't fear it. We don't fear bombers by thousands coming over the skies of our cities the way they feared it because they did it in the 1940s. We don't fear that. And we have a man in Russia right now, Putin, who 
didn't fear it, post-World War II generation, born after the war, no memory of it. And he's trying it again. Yeah, these are, um, you know, this this point about the generations, I've, I've made similar points myself, both on this podcast um, and to my students in my sort of day job uh, teaching. And... I mean, I was I was hoping maybe you'd be a little bit more optimistic than me, but um, sound, I'm sounds... an optimist by temperament, but by education and experience as a historian, it's turned me into a pessimist. I, I hope I'm wrong. I absolutely hope I'm completely and totally wrong. But I see this pattern so many times in history, um, and it's a pattern. And history doesn't repeat itself, as you know. Mark Twain was right; it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And the rhymes are these large patterns where a persistent human nature and a forgetfulness and a generational psychology re-encounters conflict and war with new technologies and new national configurations. But if you walk away from all of that, step back and take the big picture view, it's the same thing. We've been doing it not for hundreds of years. We've been doing it for millennia. And I I wonder if the United States might be, um, in terms of its current generation of leaders, particularly prone to, I don't know, recklessness or hubris for for a variety of reasons, not only because the World War II generation is is mostly gone. I mean, when I, when I look back at the, the Cold War, I go, wow, would we have made it through the Cold War without, you know, the thermonuclear trigger being pulled if if it didn't just so happen that the guys who held the helm of power at the time were the World War II, you know, generation, and they had I, as I think that's a good question. As, I think I mean you can't answer it, but it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, as as reckless as some of them could be at times, none of them ever ultimately, you know, launched launched the nukes during any of the crises. No, and when MacArthur um, actually called for nukes to be used against China in the Korean War, Truman fired him. Right, right. But then the other thing that makes me wonder about about uh, the United States in particular. Is that even when, when we look back to the last, you know, truly giant, uh, war, of course, World War II, virtually none of that directly touched the United States in, in terms right. of the homeland. You know, there were no American cities leveled to the ground. There, you know, nothing like that. Five um, Americans were killed on U.S. mainland soil in Bly, Oregon. That's it by a Japanese balloon bomb. That's it. The Sunday school party was killed. It was the only Americans killed in the 48 states. Right, right. So, you know, looking at some of these other countries, I mean, they have the same generational constellation um, as, as far as, you know, obviously their World War II uh, veterans are, are mostly gone as well. But yep. but at least in some of the countries in Europe and Asia, there's at least a little bit more of, of I guess, a living memory among some of the population simply because their cities actually did get leveled to the ground. and Yeah, um, I think that's true. Japan, you know, as well. But again, you know, the current prime minister of Japan is attempting to alter the the Article 9 of the Constitution to allow Japan to deploy military forces abroad. So uh, they, is, is it causing them political trouble? Is he having difficulty doing it? Yes. But that's now another 10 or 15 years. And we'll be even further removed from the Japanese memory of the war. And people will say, well, we need to defend ourselves. Well, why should we be restricted? Why can't we be a normal nation? We're one of the good nations. And they'll change the Constitution. You know, uh, we shall see what happens on the eastern frontier of, of what is currently the NATO countries, although NATO, it's hard to see it as anything but a, a shell of an alliance any longer. But we shall see. The Germans clearly... Uh, they absolutely wanted to, nothing to do with a war, particularly with the Russians, so they're staying out of the Ukrainian conflict and so on. 
But at the end of the day, that's on their border. It's just across. It's just over there. It's too close. It's too threatening. When Putin goes, what will happen in Russia? Will there be chaos? Will there be more conflict? Will there be another demagogue trying to distract from domestic problems by uh, a, a war into the Baltic states? Can the Germans ignore that? I am not persuaded that that they would not become engaged again. It would be difficult. It would be reluctant. It would be last minute. But it's not impossible. Yeah, we tragically may may yet see more leaders being seduced by the allure of battle then. And peoples. Uh, yep. I mean, look at the Russians today. I mean, I do think this applies. Putin invades Crimea. His, up, his, his polls go into the 90s. Uh, then they start falling back as people realize we're still in Russia. <laughs> Misgoverned kleptocracy. Uh, and then he invades Ukraine and his polls go back up into the high 80s. I mean, it's the oldest trick in the book, the Argentine junta. Was, was collapsing from, from un, domestic unpopularity and so on. And it invaded the Falkland Islands, um, you know, as, as, as a grand distraction. Um, it's, it's an old autocratic, uh, trick. One worries in the news today about this talk about Iran and America clashing. Uh, things can get out of control. And Iran is not a minor power. This is not even Iraq we're talking about. This is a, this is a significant power with a big population, a sophisticated, determined culture. Uh, people should be very nervous about what is happening there, I think. Well, before we close off, um, were there any any uh, major points that you wanted to make or any anything about uh, the allure of battle that you wanted to get to that um, we didn't hit on yet? Just that I really hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I really do hope I'm wrong uh, because it's um, – the next book I'm writing actually is my students kind of talked me into doing this. It's It's called Decency and I'm looking for sort of, you know, small green shoots of decency in the midst of warfare, uh, because I tend to depress my students a lot. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> I need to do something, and myself, to be honest. Uh, I need to um, try and uh, find something better. I, I don't have any larger points about, about the book. The one thing I would say in its favor, and you sort of mentioned it, is I do think it's well-written. I do think it... I, I tried to do in this book... I tried to say things that I thought... You know, I'm, I'm 62 now. I've tried to say things that I've been thinking about all my life, but never really articulated myself, as you were saying earlier, uh, earlier in my life. And, and in the, in the sort of writing of the book, it came together. And then I have to thank my publisher who just said, go for it. I mean, at one point I had a $125,000 word limit, 125,000, not dollar, 125,000 word limit. And, um, and, and I was at about 75,000 and I was about a third of the way through and I said, I can't do it. And he said, we don't care. Just go ahead and write what you want. Um, which is why I ended up at 800 pages. But well, that freed me. That freed me to say things that I think are not in a lot of history books. And and I am surprised. I, I had no idea about this, this book prize. I didn't even know I was on the final committee until I got an email from them. Uh, but I'm surprised by the critical reaction. I'm most pleased uh, uh, by the fact that active military read this and they just go, yep. And it's been well-received in the military journals and by active military, and I think, unfortunately, for a sad reason, which is I'm not telling them anything they don't know. They know they're in a war of attrition. Uh, in fact, when I asked, I won't say who it was, but I asked an active-duty colonel at Fort Leavenworth uh, when I was out there. Um, it was I was getting briefed on lessons learned from Afghanistan and Iraq, and I, again, too cheekily said for a civilian, you know, have we learned any lessons? And he immediately said, we have. The politicians have not. Well, um, on on that uh, on, on that sobering s- note, sad, sad but true, I guess. Um, yeah, uh, sort of note. 
I do want to urge anyone who's uh, at all interested to go and check out The Allure of Battle. It is a very interesting read. Um, I learned a lot, uh, in addition to also having some of my, my preconceived thoughts of, of things, uh, bolstered and articulated better w- with more research than I've ever done on these topics. So, um, thank you very much, Professor Nolan, for taking the time and being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. All right, and I just want to once again thank Professor Nolan for giving me the time to come on the podcast. And like I said, I highly recommend the book, The Allure of Battle. I found it a fascinating read, and I learned a lot of things. And at the same time, it interestingly dovetailed with some of my larger observations and statements over the years regarding military history and the way that battle and warfare and the alleged great captains of war are often romanticized and treated in various ways that are somewhat misleading. So if it's a topic you're all interested in, it is definitely a book worth reading. I'll also link to some of Professor Nolan's other books in the show notes as well, including something I just found out about in our few minutes of chatting before I started recording this podcast conversation. Professor Nolan also writes fiction, future military fiction, kind of sci-fi stuff, written under the pen name Kelly Altsoba. Apparently he started doing this initially, you know, anonymously, not revealing his, his true identity, although now it's, it's public, so I'm okay telling you this. But yeah, I had no idea, and he mentioned it to me when we were chatting. So I'll link to some of those books as well. Looks like interesting stuff. You may want to check it out if that's something you're into. So all that and more, as usual, in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. If you like what you heard, there are many ways you can help the show. One of the most important, of course, is to spread the word about the show to others that you think might appreciate it to help grow the audience. Another huge way is to help out the show financially in some way. There are many ways you can do this. You can make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Or one of the best ways is to sign up to make a recurring contribution to the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon or Subscribestar. If you sign up for just $5 per month via either Patreon or Subscribestar, you'll get access to exclusive bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes that are available nowhere else. And you'll also get access to vintage DHP episodes, which are the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to GenPop, the general population. You will also get ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes as they come out. And lastly, for that same contribution, you will also have the option to join the private Facebook group, the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. Another great way you can help out the show at no additional cost to you is to do your Amazon shopping through any of my Amazon affiliate links that are found on my website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And if you go through those affiliate links to get to Amazon, anything you purchase will At no additional cost to you, give me a small commission. This is another thing that helps me with things like keeping the lights on for the Dangerous History Podcast, purchasing research materials for upcoming episodes, and so forth. I also have an Amazon wish list full of books and things for future research projects, and so another way you can help me out is buy me something off of that. That's really cool. So anyway, I hope you'll consider contributing or supporting to the show in one way or another to help me Keep this thing going and keep this thing constantly growing and improving. This has been another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast, as always, doing my utmost to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.